Thank you for downloading the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. Good to be together again. Turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 27. Proverbs 27 is where we left off. If you were here last week, you know that we had uh, some visitors with us from Croatia that were sharing uh, both the word and a report of their ministry here. So today we're going to return back then uh, to our study of the book of Proverbs. We left off in chapter 27, verse 12. We'll pick right up where we left off and continue to move through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for that, uh, this opportunity to gather. We thank you for the word. <clears throat> and Lord, uh, I just can't help but think that these are the words of God. And Lord, we're opening up this book and you're speaking. And Lord, uh, we don't want anything to hinder it. And so we pray for our hearts and our minds that they would be fully present here, Lord, to receive from you. Lord, we know that many times the hardness of our hearts uh, blocks out the things you may want to have for us. And so, Lord, we do pray, Lord, that you would create in us a soft heart that is ready to receive. And Lord, we know even just the distractions of life can hinder what you want to do. And so, Lord, a lot going on, no doubt, for each of us afterwards. And so we just put those things aside that we might receive from you. Lord, minister your truth to our hearts in the deepest place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, Proverbs 27, if you look in your bulletin, you'll notice the uh, title of our sermon is, What Are Friends For? Now, I'm from a child of the 80s, I guess you might say. I was born in the 70s, but in the 80s is when I sort of grew up, and there was a wonderful song back then. Some of you may know, That's What Friends Are For. I thought it would be fun if we sang that song together this morning. I'm just kidding. Who was it, Dionne Warwick or something like that? Come on, baby. That's What Friends Are For. We could sing together, but that would be wrong, and so we're not. But rather, we're go- we are going to consider that idea of what are friends for? What's the purpose of godly relationships and friendships as well? And we'll talk about that as we make our way to that verse. But first, we'll start in verse 13. You'll notice there in 13, it says this, Take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger. Hold it in pledge when he puts up security for an adulteress. And so again, we come back to this theme, this idea that we've seen a number of times in the book of Proverbs, and that's the idea of putting up security for another person. Your version may say putting up surety for another person. This is the idea of co-signing a loan for another individual, that that person is about to take a debt on themselves And because they are a risk to not pay that debt back, somebody else has to say, look, if they don't pay it, I'll pay it. That's putting up security for another person, putting up surety for another person. And throughout our study of Proverbs, Solomon probably about seven or eight times has said, not a good idea to do it. You can do it if you want to, but you're setting yourself up for trouble. That the man or the woman of wisdom is not going to put themselves financially at risk for another person who already is a risk. And the fact that somebody else has to come and co-sign a loan for them demonstrates that they're a risk. And so Solomon says, in wisdom, you shouldn't do it. All right, and keep yourself from such uh, an arrangement. Now, specifically here, notice who Solomon says to avoid. These aren't the only two people to avoid in the matter of putting up security for another person, but two people in particular that he draws our attention to in this chapter here, Proverbs 27, he says, take a man's garment when he has put up security for a stranger. 
And then the second person will be the adulteress. Let's talk about the stranger first off is this. When you put up surety for another person, you are essentially saying, look, this guy is good for it. And if they aren't good for it, I'll cover it for them. Now, how can you make such an affirmation about someone you don't know, a stranger? And so he's already warned us not to do it, even for people we do know. Here he's saying, don't put up surety for a stranger, someone you don't know. And that makes logical sense, right? Now, the second person is the adulteress. And I think we could just as equally replace this with the adulterer. And the adulteress, or the, the female version, the adulterer, the male version, this is a person who could not be uh, trusted to keep their solemn vow before God, to keep their solemn vow to love, to cherish, to adore their husband or their wife. Does that sound like a person you can trust to pay back their debt? No, it doesn't, does it? Come on, you don't want, come on, friends. No, certainly, it doesn't seem like that's a person that's going to keep their word. And so Solomon says, that's not a person you want to put up surety for either. And so neither the stranger who you don't know or the adulteress who doesn't keep her word, neither of those folks are to be entrusted in this particular way. And so why would you compromise your financial situation to pay their debt if they can't or they won't pay their debt? Again, you look and say, all right, what track record has the person established? The stranger, you have no idea. And the adulteress has already put it out there. And so I'll put this phrase here, this proverb, in sort of my own words. It's this. Be very careful when getting into financial dealings with such folks and with those foolish enough to get into financial dealings with such folks. That's your takeaway. Be very careful with your financial dealings. Amen? Verse 14. Now, please don't go back to verse 13. Please don't say, yeah, that's probably true. I'll think about what I'm going to do when I get there. All right, take these words and apply them to your heart now, that if the circumstance comes at a latter point, you're ready to go. Verse 14, whoever blesses his neighbor with a loud voice rising early in the morning will be counted as cursing. Now, I'd like to make a confession right now. I have been accused of doing this many times, even by my children. Uh, and here's the problem. I'm going I'm to defend my actions my problem is this. I wake up about an hour, maybe even 90 minutes before my children do. And so by the time my kids get up, I'm raring to go. I want to see people, talk to people, you know, tell stories about what I was reading and, you know, how was your sleep and tell me all about your dreams. And so I have a tendency, my kids walk in, they're rubbing their eyes, their hair is in all different directions. And for, how's it going? And I, I usually get sort of the hand raised, the eyes closed, and things like that. And, and the, the kids are kind, right, Luke? They won't say anything. My wife usually says, you just got to give them time, you know, this kind of thing. So I've been certainly in their hearts accused many times of uh, cursing them early in the mornings with my blessings, as you can see there. Now, here's the takeaway, I think. The takeaway is to read your situations before kind of going forward. Because, you know, hey, somebody coming and asking you, how was your sleep? Did you have a nice rest? You know, what's your plans for the day? All of those are great. To have somebody in your life that cares about those things, that's a blessing. But one minute after they woke up, that blessing is a curse. 
And so you got to read your situations that you are in here. An hour or so later, that would be a total blessing in those people's lives. So read your situations carefully and act accordingly. I think there's a second takeaway that this verse is speaking to as well, and that would be this idea. And, And it's more than just your loud blessings early in the morning, but it's the idea that your loud blessings start early in the morning, and they're nonstop throughout the day. And it's almost as if those praises, those blessings and so on are over the top. And when that happens, sort of that effusive praise, what most of us do is we kind of pull back and you're like, all right, what do you want? What are you trying to butter me up for? You know, you're just so wonderful. You're just so great. And all throughout the day, they're buttering you up. And then at 9 p.m., for me, you start tired and you'll agree to anything. They're like, hey, by the way, could I have a million dollars? Sure, take it or whatever. Because they buttered you up throughout the day for it. And so that may be kind of where the, the proverb is going as well. So I think you could take away both of those life lessons. There's a wonderful little old saying. It says this, sometimes these sayings that, that kind of rhyme, they stick with us and the truth of it can just resonate in our minds. Here it is. It says, he who praises more than he is wont to do either has deceived you or is about to. And many times that is the issue. That is the case. They're buttering you up to take advantage of you. And so if you are on the receiving end of that praise, then I would just simply say this, be on your guard. Be aware. Who knows where this guy is going? All right, allow everything to kind of work itself out. But if you are on the, uh, the giving end of this praise, and you are doing so because you're trying to pull one over on that person or take advantage of that person, you're buttering that person up, then the takeaway is this, you don't need to do that. You can be a person that is open and honest and true and deal with people and integ- in integrity and then leave these things to the Lord. You can do that and you can entrust yourself to him in that particular way because the reality is most people are turned off by your scheming anyway and they can see right through it. All right? So you don't have to resort to that sort of a method to get over on people. Okay, a couple different takeaways there. Moving on, look at verse 15, 16 as well. We're going to do them together. It says, a continual dripping on a rainy day and a quarrelsome wife are alike. To restrain her is to restrain the wind or to grasp oil in one's right hand. This is worthy of a sip of water. (laughs) Just kidding. I was thirsty. This is not the first time that we're introduced to this idea of the, the nagging wife or things like that. And quite honestly, I've said it before, uh, a husband can j- be just as nagging and annoying. Amen, I got. All right. And obnoxious and so on. And, and here's how it works. I, I think what happens is, is we erroneously begin to think that if we continually nag a person, we're finally going to break that person. And then they're going to do everything we want to do, and we want them to do. And if we stop nagging now, I'm going to lose all the ground that I have gained over the last 10 years of nagging that particular person. And so we continue then to employ that particular method, and we become a quarrelsome person. We nag that particular person. And here's the truth. It might work. The nagging may get that person to do what it is you're going to do, but like a continual dripping water, it will eventually cause lasting damage to the area that it's dripping on. 
And so I think I told you a little while back, we had a gutter and there was a seam of the gutter and the water just dripped down out of that seam whenever the, the rain got a little heavy. And it damaged the roof, down, the roof down below that it was landing on there because it was just a constant drip into the same particular area. And so I knew this idea that a continual dripping on one area continually is going to cause it to be damaged. But I wanted to make sure that it wasn't just, you know, this one-time experience. So I went on Google, the place of all truth. I went to Google, and I asked this question, can a constant drip damage wood? Wood's pretty strong, pretty solid, isn't it? Can a constant drip damage wood? And the answer I got back was yes. Many of you already know this, but now we have proof, Google. Alrighty, and there it said this, and it answered, it asked the question, can a tiny drip cause damage to wood? And so it said yes for three reasons. Number one, because damp wood encourages mold growth, and as that growth uh, begins to take place, the whole wall's got to come out or, or whatever it is you're working on. Number two, because insects are attracted to damp wood, particularly the type of insects that like to eat the wood, they eat the damp wood and thus destroy it. And then number three, because damp wood slowly deteriorates and eventually is destroyed. Just a tiny little drip though, no big deal. But when you finally get in there to deal with it, the entire wall has to come out, the entire uh, portion of the roof has to come out or the floor has to come out, all because of that tiny little drip. And you think it's just a tiny drip. Well, tiny drips are more harmful and destructive than a person might think. And again, Solomon equates the quarreling or nagging husband or wife to such a tiny drip. And so if you are a person who employs that method, I will wear people down until they do what I want them to do. I'll nag them to the point they either want to get out of here or they'll do what I say. And whether you do that as a husband or a wife, some employers do that, some coaches do that, team leaders do that. However you may find yourself employing that methodology, may I make a suggestion? May Solomon make a suggestion to us? Stop it, okay? Because you're probably causing more harm than good and more damage than, uh, than good in that situation there, okay? Amen? Verse 17 Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. Have you heard that verse before? It's one of the most popular proverbs that is out there. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. And what Solomon does here is he directs our attention. There is that common practice of taking one piece of iron, one piece of metal, and using it to sharpen a second piece of iron or a second piece of metal. And so as I'm thinking of this, as I was studying here, I, I pictured in my mind, I thought there was an old Norman Rockwell painting of dad standing over the, the uh, turkey and getting ready to carve it, but I couldn't find it, so I found something else instead. This is an example, right? You've seen guys like this, people like this, iron sharpening iron, and so he's got a knife in his one hand, the other item that he has, has in his other, it's called a honing steel. And you'll see guys, they'll do this thing and then they'll carve that particular car, uh, turkey and do all that sort of stuff. That's what Solomon is basically speaking of. The way in which you would use one piece of iron to sharpen another piece of iron. And then he takes that concept, which is relatively familiar to us and no doubt his readers as well, and he applies it to friends honing one another. That's a honing steel. 
honing one another or sharpening one another through their interactions here. And so again, he says, as iron sharpens iron and one man sharpens another. Good friends can hone one another's rough edges, and they should. Good friends can sharpen one another and thus increase their effectiveness. Why does a person, before they're about to carve the turkey, hone the knife to begin with? Because it's going to be more effective if it's at its sharpest. And so if it's somewhat dull, it'll still get the job done, but it won't be as effective. And good friends can sharpen one another so they can be at their most effective, which is certainly what we want to be, isn't it? Yeah. And it's one of the privileges and the benefits of sharing life with other people, that we hone one another, we sharpen one another. It's why we continually emphasize here at Calvary Chapel that your involvement here at this church should be more than you come in on Sunday, you say hi to some people, you do the handshake time, and maybe you have a couple of chats out in the hall there, but that you should go deeper in your relationship with people here. Because we are like-minded, for the most part, I would imagine, we're a like-minded body of believers that want to know the Lord and go deeper in our relationship with him. And so you should invest into the lives of other people. You should build your relationships with other people. You should, all of us, everyone in this room, should get involved in a small group with other people in this church so that you can hone other people and they can hone you. You can sharpen other people and they can sharpen you. Now, let me give you a warning. Just as the action of iron sharpening iron oftentimes brings with it some sparks that fly. Let me show you a little picture here. This is iron sharpening iron in a larger scale than dad getting ready to cut uh, the, the turkey. And when iron, when metal is put up against other, other metal, sparks are going to fly. And as you can imagine, if that's your life and the sparks are flying, that's probably not the most comfortable experience, is it? No. So, thank you, Doug. There's pain involved. When the sparks are flying, if you're the one that's giving off the sparks, there's some uh, pain that is involved in that particular process. That's not necessarily going to be a comfortable thing, but that's what it takes to hone and to sharpen the implement. Do you want to be honed? Do you want to be sharpened? Do you want to be more like Christ as you get to the end of your days than you are presently? Well, this is the process that the Lord uses. What are friends for? Is the title of our sermon. They're to sharpen one another. And so as we submit ourselves to that particular process, don't be surprised that there are typically going to be some sparks that fly. Now, oftentimes when we think of iron sharpens iron, this is like a, this is, if you've been around the Christian church a bit, You've probably been involved in a group that uses this verse as our mission. Our mission, iron's going to sharpen iron. Usually it's associated with men's ministry. And you've got big burly men, and they have a side hug or something. And they're like, yeah, iron sharpens iron. Ho, ho, ho. You know, this sort of thing. And you look at that, and when you look at the picture, these guys usually have a big smile on their face, and they're happy about the experience of iron sharpening iron. The reality is... When iron sharpens iron, it's more often than not a happy, pleasant time. But it's more often where sparks are flying. It usually begins with a guy coming up to another guy, gal coming up to another gal, whatever it may be, and saying, hey, can I talk to you for a minute about something? Don't you love when somebody approaches you that way? 
My wife approaches me that way a lot. And I'm like, oh, crumb. What did I do now? I'm in trouble. Okay, but typically, that's how it begins. And your friend will say to you, hey, man, you know, I've just been noticing this of late, and I'm concerned for you. And then you've got to deal with that. And initially, the sparks start flying. Oh, yeah, well, let me tell you what I was noticing about you, you know. And who are you to tell me? But if that's a true friend who cares about you, loves you, wants what's best for you, then you know what they're sharing with you is going to be for your good. And so again, our tendency is to avoid the sparks flying. And how do we do that? We keep everybody at arm's length. Hi, how are you? Hello, nice to see you. But as we begin to build our lives together, the sparks may begin to fly. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually for your good. That's why God called you to be in fellowship with other believers. Embrace that. Allow the Lord to do his work in your life. Okay, good friends. Verse 18 says this, whoever tends a fig tree will eat its fruit and he who guards his master will be honored. He who tends a fig tree will eat its fruit. Anybody can have a good day of personal motivation. Some of us aren't really self-motivated too much. We're kind of a little lazy. Somebody has to crack the whip to get us going and things like that. But even those individuals can have a good day from time to time, a day of personal motivation. They could get out there. They could plant the crop on that particular Saturday. Come on, we're all gathering. We're going to plant the crop. Or they could plant, to use the example here, the fig tree. But it requires diligence to regularly tend that fig tree, to regularly tend that crop. So if you think, all right, I put it in the ground. That should be good enough. It's not going to be as good as it should be. It might produce some fruit. But more likely than not, the weeds are going to grow and they're going to suck away some of the nutrient. More likely than not, because you didn't get out there and put a little cage around it, the animals are going to come and eat of that particular crop. You have to tend it regularly. And so, again, this idea is that any of us can have a good day. And many people just simply want to reap the harvest. Where's the harvest? Where's the crop? Where are the figs from this particular tree? That's what I'm looking for. We might say of those folks, they just want the good stuff. I don't want the hard work. I just want the benefits of other people's hard work. Many people approach life that way. Others, they recognize the importance of planting. They have a good day of personal motivation. They get up early on that Saturday. They get to it. And then they sit back waiting for the produce. Now, certainly that's a little bit better than the first scenario. But even that is not ideal. What is ideal is the person that gives himself diligently to tending that particular crop. And that's what Solomon is suggesting to us here. Whoever tends to the crop, whoever tends to the fig tree, is the one that will eat its fruit. And so our takeaway is what is needed is to con- not only to start well, but to continue well and to continue with diligence. That's crucial. And so whether you are talking about your garden in your backyard and you think you can plant it today and everything will be there for you three months from now, or we're talking about our schooling and we start great. I used to start school great. I was the best first day of school student out there. And then I got a little bored and I stopped reading and next thing you know, I end up here Uh, or whatever it may be. I don't know how it happened here. All right, but you have to be diligent in your schooling. You have to be diligent in raising your children. Wouldn't it be great, parents, Kids are five, six, seven years old. We sit them down and say, all right, look, here's how life works. Here's what I need from you. Go get them. You know what I mean? Like, that's it. 
All right, but that's not it. You have to keep pouring into your kids. You have to tend them. You have to be diligent in, with them. Our marriages, we think, you know, it's like the old joke, the person said, I told you I love you when we got married. You should know, kind of thing. Like, that's good enough. I told you once and everything is fine. But we have to nurture our marriages. And if we don't tend to our marriages, well, then they're going to disintegrate. But we have to pour ourselves into those things. And think about your personal growth. If you do not daily invest into your personal spiritual growth, is it reasonable to conclude that you will see spiritual produce in your life? It's not. You have to personally pour into it on a regular basis. And so the idea that here is that we continue well with diligence and that those things are crucial to produce the crop that the Lord would have us to produce. You can't put your spiritual walk on autopilot and expect fruit to be produced. And you can't go through the motions in raising your children or in the marriage that you have or all these other things at your job, at your studies, all those other things, and expect that you're going to get a productive output. You're not. You're certainly not going to get what it could be. And so we have to be diligent. Now let me tell you what stinks about being diligent from the perspective of Greg Downs. Here's what stinks about being diligent. It's that I have to motivate myself day after day after day to be so. I can motivate myself for one particular day. I watch a Dave Ramsey video, and I am ready to deal with my finances as God would have me to deal with my finances. I watch some YouTube thing about getting in shape, and I'm ready to do it. Here I go. And I, you know, I get out there, and I take the trash out. I'm like, that was a good day of exercise. You know what I mean? And I am just ready. And I'm motivated. The problem is I lose that motivation a week later, two weeks later. You've probably been there with dieting and things like that. A few weeks goes by, February hits, and, you know, everything is out the door, out the window. You have to motivate yourself daily. And sometimes, many times, I don't feel like doing that anymore, where I was highly motivated just a couple of weeks back. And it's in those instances I think you have to convince yourself. First, I would add this. If you have others that are motivated in this instance with you, then you can encourage one another, strengthen one another when your motivation fades later. Because more often than not, you're out of motivation, but they still are. And so they can say, come on, we can do this, and vice versa as time goes on. So that's the first idea. Find some friends uh, in the process. The second thing really is an internal thing that goes on in your heart and in your mind, and that's this. Number one, you have to convince yourself that this is the right thing to do that this is the thing I need to do and ultimately go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'll never continue to do this without your help. And that is how you can spur diligence on to take that next step day after day after day so it becomes a pattern and even a habit in your particular life. So that's this opening phrase. Once again, this mention of the idea of diligence that Solomon makes. Now notice the second half of the verse, it talks about something different. It talks about the importance of faithfulness or you might say trustworthiness. And so the phrase goes this way, and he who guards his master will be honored. And so it's the person who's diligent in their efforts and faithful to carry out their duties. That's the person that will be honored. That's the person who's going to get that promotion. That's the person who's going to be trusted to do that particular responsibility. They're the ones that can be both trusted and entrusted with greater works than these, so to speak, because people are observing them. 
And so we've seen these character traits um, sort of magnified in the book of Proverbs, diligence and faithfulness. Diligence and faithfulness. By now, you should be taking inventory of your life and you should say, would people look at me as a person that's diligent, hardworking, get to do what I need to do and does it day after day after day? Would people determine that about yourself? Would you determine that about yourself? If you're not satisfied with where you are in that continuum of I'm a diligent individual, make it a matter of prayer that the Lord would cause you to be more like him in that. Faithfulness. If you would look at your life or others would look at your life and you say, well, you're kind of all over the place. Sometimes you're here, tomorrow you're over there, next thing you're doing this, next thing you're doing that. You tell me you're going to be here, I never know if you're going to show up, and so I have to make plans for somebody else to do it because who knows if you're going to be here. If people would say that about you, that's not a very faithful, loyal, trusted individual. So why would we tr- entrust more things to you? Or why would the Lord? And if you look at that and you're like, man, that stinks about myself. Make it a matter of prayer. Say, Lord, change me. You want this for me. Do that in me. And you submit yourself to that. You see how this works? So the Lord he impresses on our heart. These are character traits we should be seeking to manifest and then grow in. Verse 19 says this. As in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Now, in the days before mirrors, one of the best places to see your reflection was in a still body of water of some sorts. So a little pond you come across, or some would even, you could take like a a silvery metal plate with some water in it, and you could look into that, and you might be able to see your reflection there. And so the best place for you to see the reflection of your own face would be in this body of water. And so he says, as water uh, reflects... as in water, face reflects face. And so you could go to, you could look at it, you could see what's going on up in here. Oh boy, I got some stuff there from dinner or whatever. And you could brush it away and you could deal with it as water reflects face. But notice here, so the water, face reflects face. The heart of man reflects, as it says here, the man. So you really want to know who a man is, what a man is, what a woman is, what makes them tick, what kind of a person are they, and so on. Well, the heart really reveals those things. And so, if you really want to know who one of these people are, find out what moves their heart. Find out what sort of things breaks their heart. Find out what's going on inside of your heart. And that'll give you the best indication of what's actually going on in their lives, who they really are. And you could apply the same thing to yourself. You take inventory. What kind of a person am I? Well, what jazzes you up? What enthuses you? If you're sitting in a setting here, what do you most want to talk about with people? Is it the Eagles? I'm not sure what this year is going to hold. But is it, you know, is it like football, football, football? Let's talk about football. I like football. That's cool. Did you see the Eagles killed the Giants this year? It was great. You know, whatever. I like having those conversations for the one time that we can have those conversations or whatever. But is that the passion of your life? Is that what moves you? You know, is it your bank account and your money and we went and we did this thing and this vacation and that thing? Are they the passions of your heart? Well, that reveals things about yourself. Your heart exposes who you really are. And so take inventory. Same thing with other people uh, as well as you're interacting with others. It's the heart that really reveals who the man is. Now, there is an alternative understanding of this verse which really comes out in the NRSV. That's the New Revised Standard Version. It's a good Bible translation. And so they write it this way. Just as water reflects the face, so the one, excuse me, so one human heart reflects another. 
And the idea there would be this. As you take time to consider other people, maybe you study, if you will, sort of study other people, what you pretty soon realize and take notice of is that they're not really all that different from yourself. As you take time and you look at another person, you realize this person really isn't that different from me because we're all not that much different from one another. You boil it all down, and we all pretty much have the same emotions and the same temptations, the same ambitions, the same uh, strengths, weaknesses, thoughts, or what have you. Overall, we're really not that different. And what's different many times is the details. The details are different. But at the root of it, our hearts are all pretty much the same. I find it so interesting when after... When I prepare a sermon, I I spend about a week looking at this material. And during that time, one of my chief goals is to speak this sermon to myself. And so I'm not preparing this thinking, oh, this is a good one for so-and-so. Oh, and they need to hear this. And you know what? This new trend is happening. I've got to make sure I address that. What I'm doing is I'm studying this material for myself. As the Lord speaks to my heart, I bring it out there for each of us to chew on it as well so that the Lord can speak to your heart. And as I do so, there are weeks where I'll prepare a sermon, and it was just a good, powerful week of study for myself personally. And I'm thinking, man, that was a meal. That was awesome. Lord, wow, you've really done some work in my heart. And what's fascinating is Sunday comes, I share the sermon, and someone will come and they'll say, that sermon was just for me. That was just for me. Some will even say, did my wife call you? tell you what's going on or whatever because that was that was right for me and the reason why it is is because we're all not that different and our hearts are the same Henry Ironside a great preacher I think he was in the Philly area in the 1950s or so Ironside said this if I would show a man his sinfulness I need but to describe in a measure the evil of my own heart and he's likely to think I've been privately informed as to his faults and that I'm exposing him publicly And how could he say that? He could say that because we're not not all that different. And so one heart reveals another man's heart, so to speak, because they're all the same. Now that should cause each of us to treat one another with a little more patience, shouldn't it? Because you know yourself, you need a lot of patience. It should treat one another, us to be more merciful to each other, to be a little more honest with one another, because we know in the deepest places we're all pretty much the same, and we all need the Lord's mercy in our lives. I think that knowledge should serve to knit our hearts together even more as a body of believers, and my prayer is that the Lord would do that as he roughs or hones those rough edges in our lives. Amen, friends? Now, we'll go on to verse 20. Look at it. It says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, and never satisfied are the eyes of man. Now, your version may not even have Sheol and Abaddon there. Uh, Perhaps it says something like hell and destruction, or the grave and decay, as some versions here. Sheol and Abaddon, it's talking about both the grave and what happens to the spirit of the man when he goes into the grave. Because we know these are just physical bodies that we have. Who we really are is our spirit, our soul. That's who we really are. And so we pass from this life to the next. That's the idea of Sheol. That's the idea there of Abaddon. And so, as it says in some of the versions, grave and decay. And the idea then is this. The point then is this. The grave, death, is never going to say, you know what, lots of people have died. Too many people have died. No more death. 
The death is never, death, if it was personified, is never going to be satisfied to say, I've had enough of that, no more. The local cemetery might say that. All the plots are full, we got no more room, you know, we got to buy some more land somewhere. The local cemetery to house your local body might, but death is never going to declare such a thing. And then Solomon compares that to, as it says here, man's eyes. And so he says, man's eyes will never be satisfied. Now, your version might say man's cravings or man's desires. The idea there is the longing of our hearts. So the, the longing of our hearts is never going to be satisfied here. You've, I've said this before. For someone that is seeking after wealth or the accumulation of goods, you might say to that person, how much is enough? And the response is, just a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. I just need a little bit more. But you have everything, quote unquote, that this world could offer. Yeah, I know, but if I had just a little more, just a slightly bigger home, just a slightly faster car, a slightly better wife or whatever, if I had just a little bit more, then I would be satisfied there. How much is enough? Just a little more. And so what happens? We settle into our lovely little apartment and it's wonderful. I remember when my wife and I, we moved into our first apartment. It was down in Lambertville. And, you know, I had been living in a room in my parents' house. Now I had my own little apartment, my wife and I, and I thought I was the king of the world. This is great. People move into their nice little apartment. They say things, oh, it's the cutest place ever. And by cutest place ever is it's kind of tiny, but we love it, you know, this sort of thing. But after a while, that tiny little apartment, you begin looking for a bigger apartment or a place of our own we start speaking about. You were totally content, but now you're desiring something more. Or we get to that nice little place of our own and we begin looking for something with a view by the lake or something within walking distance of the shops and things like that. We're never satisfied. We keep on moving forward. We get a job and it's not long before we start wanting a better job. We get into a relationship and a few months, years goes by and we start wondering, well, perhaps there's somebody better that is out there. For a better relationship. We have this fantastic experience on this particular weekend. By Wednesday, we're dissatisfied and we're trying to top it the next weekend. There's this longing that is within our hearts. And I would suggest to you that longing is there by God's design, or at the very least, as a result of the fall. Because by design or as a result of the fall, you were created to be in relationship with God. And so there is a longing that was within us. And I remember when I began to discover that longing. I was a sophomore in high school. Thought I had everything kind of going for me, figured it all out, and yet the Lord was beginning to reveal to me, there's a hole, there's a vacuum, there's something missing. And it took me about two years, or perhaps about a year and a half, to figure out what was missing. What was missing was I was not in relationship with God. The Lord created each one of us to know him and to share fellowship with him. That's what you were created for. That's the hole, if you will, that is in our hearts. And we try to throw things in there and fill it up to satisfy it. And temporarily, many of those things do. But they eventually dissipate and the hole remains. There's only one thing that can ultimately fill it. And that's a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, an intimate relationship with him, to have your sins forgiven, which alienate you from God, and to be in right fellowship with him. Solomon is the author of the book of Proverbs. 
it's interesting to take note. Solomon also wrote another book in our Bibles called the book of Ecclesiastes. And if you didn't know that Solomon wrote both of those books, you might likely conclude there's no way the same guy wrote these two books. Because in so many ways, they're diametrically opposed the one to the other. And the whole idea of the book of Ecclesiastes, at an earlier stage in Solomon's life, Solomon gave himself to anything, hoping that that would fill that void that was within his heart here. And as you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you discover that Solomon gave himself over to anything he wanted at any given time. And so whether it was sex, or it was pleasure, or it was relationships, or it was his wealth, or the experiences that he could have, he gave himself to every one of those things completely and totally. And he comes to the conclusion at the end of the book. You want to know what the book of uh, Ecclesiastes is about? Read the last chapter, essentially. And one of the last few verses in the book of Ecclesiastes, he says this. And I like the way it's worded in the NLV. He says this, that's the whole story. In more, uh, less, uh, what's the word, uh, informal translations it is herein is the conclusion of the whole matter but in the nlv it says that's the whole story that's what it's all about he says here now is my final conclusion fear god and obey his commands for this is everyone's duty i spent all of these years of my life solomon would say running after all these other things and i have concluded here's the whole story fear god and keep his commands know the Lord, and walk in fellowship with him. That's what each of us were created to do. And it's only when we do those things, it's only when we do that which we were created to do, that you are, we are living our lives as God intended us to live our lives. And that's when peace comes in. That's when rest comes in. That's when satisfaction comes in to our lives. Those cravings of our heart are only fulfilled or fully satisfied in Christ Jesus, and anything else is mere temporary. Amen, friends? It's Christ alone who meets every longing of our soul. It's Christ alone. Now, many of us say, yeah, I got it. Sure, sounds good. Let me go find other things to fill the longing of my soul. Don't do that anymore. Go to Christ. Let me share with you a couple of uh, different scriptures. Psalm 16, it says this, you Make known to me the path of life. Notice, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I've underlined the word in, I don't know if it's up there, but in my Bible here, I've underlined the word your presence. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. Not not in like that big wedding ceremony. That's not going to be the most joyous occasion of my life. No, it's in his presence. Not when I finally hit that lottery. No, not when I get that job I've been working for for all those years. Nope, not when I get that raise. Nope, not when my kids finally clean up after dinner. It's not going to be that day. Nope, none of those things. In your presence is fullness of joy, knowing the Lord and walking with him. Psalm 107 says he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Again, underline he satisfies and he fills. And that is designed to be exclusive. None of those other things. Again, I, I shared this, and I bring it up again, I, not to be a jerk for those who don't like the Eagles, but when the Eagles won the Super Bowl this year, it just hit me. In a month, two months, three months, all of these people that are posting, this is the greatest day of my life, 
I've waited for this day. You know, my father is looking down in heaven and he's going to be one. You know, those folks, they're all going to come back to this point of I'm still not satisfied. There's got to be more. There's got to be longer. And you're already hearing it, Eagles fans. They stink. The preseason, they're the worst. You know, whatever. You're, you're already seeing people just turn because the longing of our hearts is only satisfied in Jesus Christ. Nothing else. Amen. Jesus said this, I am the bread of life, Jesus said. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. The hunger, the thirst is satisfied in him. I've circled in my Bible, I am the bread of life, referring Jesus' words speaking there. All right, we were created to know him, be in fellowship with him. Nothing else will last eternally. Moving on, verse 21 says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold. And a man is tested by his praise. Now, there's two potential understandings, and it really depends on kind of what word you put emphasis on in this verse or how you kind of word it here. The first one would be this. A man is tested by the things he praises. Okay, so a man is tested by his praise. A man is tested by the things he praises. What kind of man is that person? What kind of woman is that particular person? Well, what are the things that he or she praises with their words and their actions. That will reveal a lot about who that person is, what's going on inside of their heart. Does that person give themselves completely and totally to the acquisition of wealth and possessions? Well, that reveals to you who the God of their heart is or what the God of their heart is, that they've given themselves to the acquisition of temporal things at best. What they praise, whether it's with their mouth or what their hands praise by what they chase after, reveals what's going on in that person's heart. Do they praise injustice? Oh, you're so shrewd. You got over on that particular person. And do they admire that? That reveals what's going on inside of their own hearts. Do they honor liars and cheaters? Well, then they themselves are a liar and a cheater at the deepest places. A man is tested by the things he praises. It reveals that person. Now, the alternative understanding would be emphasis this way. A man or a woman is tested by how she, he or she reacts to praise. And so again, to, to quote it from my Bible, a man is tested by his praise. The idea would be when someone praises you, that really reveals a lot about you. So when nobody knows your name, nobody's interested in you, nobody is patting you on the back, and you just sort of keep plugging away and doing what you're supposed to do, okay. But when people start patting you on the back and saying, you're pretty awesome, and hey, we're going to put you up here, does that change you? Do you become a new person? Well, I'm in charge now. I'm going to show some things or whatever. That praise, that honoring has revealed who you really are in the deep places. You didn't set yourself up all high and mighty before because you weren't high and mighty and you couldn't say, so I'm not that impressed anymore because nobody was going to listen to you anyway. But now that you have the opportunity to, do you take advantage of that for your own good and not for the good of others? Many times we think it's the difficulties in life that are going to cause us to drift and get off course. More often than not, it's not the difficulties of life that cause us to drift. It's when everything is going wonderful and well for us that we drift because we take our eyes off of the cross that is ahead of us and we start to put them around us and we begin to wander. When I was growing up, I told you before, I worked on a farm and we had to rototill the fields or plow the fields. And, you know, after you're doing that all day, it gets a little boring. And so 
what would tend to happen is I begin to look at the birds, you know, all around or whatever. Wow, look at that over there. I never noticed that. And next thing you know, I'm gobbling up the planted vegetables. But you had to keep your head down or you had to keep your head fixed on an object that was in front of you and make your way toward that. And when things are going wonderfully well for us, we tend to look all over the place at the wonderfully well things. I don't think that's good English, but you know what I'm saying. We tend to look around. We get distracted. And so it's not the bad times that really reveal us. Oftentimes, it's when things are going great that we get off course. And they, what they do is reveal how we're responding to that praise. And so now is the time to determine, Lord, I'm going to always keep things in proper perspective. And if people start singing my praises here, I'm not going to let that distract me. Now, how do you always keep things in proper perspective? You bring things into proper perspective. And so when I compare myself to you, or you compare yourself to me, we can look at one another's life and say, yeah, he's all right, but he's no me. You see what I'm saying? There's like this ladder thing here. Well, I'm better at this and that and so on and so forth. And so we compare ourselves with one another and we lose perspective. Where we need to be comparing ourselves to is to the only one truly worthy of praise, and that's the Lord Jesus. And so when I bring myself into the presence of the Lord Jesus... If there's any sort of hierarchy or ladder that is taking place, he is way up here, and I'm way, way down here. And that's not going to change me whether some people are patting me on the back or not. Does that make sense? And so praise can reveal. Let's continue. Verse 22 says, Crush a fool in a mortar and with a pestle, along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Now let's be honest here. How many of you, raise your hand, if you know what a mortar and a pestle is. Don't put it up there. You really do, you people? You do, I bet. Yeah, get out of here. I'm shocked. Do you because you came to first service? That's why. That's what I thought here. I had no idea what a mortar and a pestle was, and I'm a pretty smart guy. You know, I've been trying to learn things in my 40-some years here, and so I suspect a lot of you don't know what it is as well, a mortar and a pestle. If I had to just use context clues, I would have thought it had something to do with laying bricks and the mortar for the bricks, and so the pestle must be like a trowel. And I would have told my kids that if they asked me, and they would have told their teacher that or something. A mortar, we have a picture here, and, and some of you I saw modeling it here. Maybe the context is a little hard. It's like a bowl, all right? And in that bowl, you would put certain objects and stuff, and then you would have this stick that you would use to grind that thing down to powder. So at my house, my wife and I, we have a dog. The kids as well, they're involved in this process. We have a dog that has to take medicine daily. And she's a smart dog. And so if you hide the medicine in a piece of meat, a lot of you do that, my dog will actually spit out the medicine and thank you for the meat. You know what I mean? And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. And so a little while back, we realized what we have to do is crush up the medicine and sprinkle it on top of her food, then put spaghetti sauce on there, and then she'll eat it. And she'll take or whatever she wants. She tells us what she wants. All right? She really does. She puts her nose up. She's like, no, not today. Try again. All right, you're killing me, dog. All right, so anyway, if you have to crush up medicine like that, you might do that in a mortar and a pestle, and you would th- with a pestle, and you would throw the little uh, piece of medicine in there, and you would crush it all up here. On a grander scale, the idea of the mortar and the pestle might be comp- compared with uh, threshing wheat. 
And so you would go out and you would beat the wheat, you would get rid of the bad stuff, and you would keep the good stuff, and you would break it down in that particular manner by running the mill over it or something like that. And what Solomon here is getting to, the whole point of this idea is that even the crushing process of like a mortar and a pestle, or even the crushing process of threshing the grain, even that is not sufficient to root out folly from the heart of a fool. That's what Solomon is getting at here. Notice it says, crush a fool in mortar with a pestle along with crushed grain, yet his folly will not depart from him. Now, a few weeks back, almost that same phrase was used in chapter 22. And there in chapter 22, what we learned is that folly can be driven from a person's life. It says here, folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline drives it far from them. Now, again, it's important to remind yourself, when we talk about folly, we're not just talking about goofiness, you know, and oh, you're so goofy, you know, you're full of folly. Sometimes we we watch those programs on TV, the follies, you know, and the people are making little silly mistakes or whatever. And, and we, so we might have in our mind, that's what we're talking about, just silliness. When Proverbs uses the word folly or it calls a person a fool, it's talking about a person there that is a self-righteous individual. It's talking about a person that is hard-hearted. It's talking about a person that's walking in rebellion. It's talking about a person that is self-seeking. Everything is about them. All of those ideas are the person that has folly bound up in their hearts. And so what Solomon tells us earlier in the book of Proverbs is that is our natural go-to. We naturally are a self-seeking people. We naturally are hard-hearted people. We're naturally prone to rebellion and to want things to be our own way. Folly is naturally within our hearts, yet it can be driven out by parents in the lives of their kids, or in the lives of their kids. Loving, consistent, correction, and discipline. But when folly settles in and it becomes the pattern of a person's life, not even the crushing process of the mortar and the pestle can then drive it away. The idea being there, a person gets set, gets set in their ways. And even the most difficult of circumstances, which typically would have their impact of bringing a person to their senses. You remember the story of the prodigal son? And you have a guy, he's kind of living it up or whatever, and then everything turned, life became very difficult. And one day in the process of all of that, he said, what am I doing? He came to his senses. He said, the slaves back with my dad are living better. The pigs are living better than I am. I'll go back to my dad's house and I'll live as a slave. Those difficult circumstances brought him to his senses. Here what Solomon tells us, when, a, when folly has established itself in a person's heart, not even those difficult cir- circumstances, which would often change a person, can have that particular effect. effect. And so it's, that's why it's so interesting to me when some parents will say, well, you know what? I'm just going to let my child grow and become the person they're going to be. I can tell you what your child is going to be. And it's not because your child is some scoundrel any more than somebody else's child. It's because we're all the same. Remember the heart? We're all pretty much the same. And our tendency is to go in a particular direction and solidify folly within our hearts. And that's a dangerous place uh, for our kids to go. And so Solomon here, he, he reminds us of the importance. Don't allow the hardness of heart, 
hardness of heart to settle into your life or to the life of those you care for. You remember that old slogan, a mind is a terrible thing to waste? I, I forget what it was for, but a heart is a terrible thing to waste. And when you allow folly to settle into your own heart or without saying anything, settle into hearts of those you care for, that person's heart's being set up to be wasted for all that God intended for them to be. Amen? Make sense? All right, let's go on to verse 23. We're going to conclude with these four verses, five verses. It says, Know well the condition of your flocks. Give attention to your herds. For riches do not last forever. And does the crown endure to all generations? When the grass is gone, the new growth appears, and the vegetation of the mountains is gathered. The lambs will provide your clothing, the goats, the price of a field. There will be enough goat's milk, excuse me, for your food, for the food of your household, and the maintenance for your girls. Now, before I get into this, let me just ask you some questions. How's your retirement planning going? How is your retirement? Terrible, I heard. Okay. Some of us here might answer, I have no idea how it's going. Apparently some know how it's going. It's not going very well. But some of us here might say, I have no idea how my retirement planning is going. Let me ask you this. How are you doing sticking to your budget? Some of us here say budget. What budget? Different line of questioning. How are your kids doing spiritually? I don't really know. Really. It's interesting. Some, I could ask the question, what's the emotional state of your spouse right now? You know, I don't know. We haven't had time to check in with one another. I couldn't really say. Well, to all of those questions and others like them, you need to be able to say. The condition of your flocks, whether that's your finances, your retirement planning, your budgeting, whether it's your children and how you're raising them and your family, whether it's your relationship with your wife or with other friends uh, or husband or other friends that you may have, the condition of your flocks is your responsibility to know well. See what Solomon says here? Know well the condition of your flocks and give attention to your herds. And the reason is this, because riches do not last and the honors of royalty, they will soon pass away unless constant care is exercised in attending to one's affairs. Unless that is happening, they'll just drift away and wander away. Unless you are investing into your relationship with your spouse, you will naturally begin to grow apart from one another. And what happens is you'll form just two separate lives, and they're no longer your spouse, they're your roommate. Unless you are investing into that person's life. Unless constant care is exercised in attending to one's affair, you'll lose a handle on those particular things. Now, so here's your takeaway. Maybe you're doing all that great. You may be in a wonderful place right now, emotionally, spiritually, financially, professionally. Everything is going great for you as it is in the beginning of this particular chapter here. That's great. Now is not the time to just coast or to rest on your laurels. And like, well, everything's going great. Everything will continue to go great. That's not how it works. Things work toward disorganization, not toward organization. Now is the time to continue diligently to keep up with your accounts, to know the condition of your flocks, to be on your guard lest you lose your way or you slip. We are called to be thorough, diligent, and aware in all things that have been entrusted to each of us. Aware of those things. So when somebody asks you those questions, you're prepared with an answer. 
or at the very least say, you know what? I'm working on that particular answer. You, you're aware of it. You know it. It's in that diligence and constant attention that continues success in those areas remains possible. So that when circumstances do change, look at verse 25. It says, when the grass is gone and the new growth appears and the vegetations of the mountains is gathered, then the lambs will provide your clothing and the goats and the price of a field and so on and so forth. And so when this aspect of life, which is wonderful now, when that's gone, your preparations here will make sure that there are things there that you can rely on and trust on and be prepared for at that particular point in time. Does that make sense? And so that's the first one. That's a very practical thing we could all apply to ourselves. Let me throw one last point, then we'll go home or wherever you're going to go. And that is this. Some of us here serve in the lives of others as spiritual leaders. You might think of it as we're shepherds in the lives of other people, using the phraseology there, know your flocks well. And as such, this verse particularly speaks to those of us in that type of a role. And that is this, that the success in our role as shepherds in another person's life is in direct proportion to the amount of diligence and attention we show to know the condition of our flocks well. And so a good shepherd is going to be engaged in the lives of those that he or she shepherds. They need to know what's going on in the lives of the people they're dealing with, what they're going through, what risks may be coming against their flock, so to speak. A shepherd can't apply a one-size-fits-all approach to ministry, or before long they're not going to have a ministry. And so if you lead in any particular way, you're a shepherd in some folks' lives. And so if you lead the youth, for instance, you're serving as a shepherd in the life of those youth. Let me ask you this question. How are the youth doing? I don't really know. You should if you're their shepherd. If you're a home group leader, that means there's a group of men and women that have entrusted themselves in many ways to your care and they show up at your house every other week, every week, whatever it may be, let me ask you this, how are those men and women doing? I don't really know. I only check in with them when they, they show up on Thursday night, Saturday night, Friday evening, or whatever. Well, you're, shirk, you're shirking your responsibilities to know your flock, the condition of your flock well. If you're a mom or a dad, you're a believer, and you're a mom or a dad, you are a shepherd in the life of your children. Do you know well the condition of your flock? You should, is our takeaway. And all of those and many more, they're high callings. They're high callings because they're spiritual callings. And as such, they will never be successfully accomplished without a constant, diligent, spiritual focus on the good of those who we are called to minister to and for. And so if you find yourself in a place of leading other people, give yourself to that place. Seek the Lord. Seek him for his power. Seek him for his wisdom. Seek him for his thoughts. Seek him for his might. But most importantly, seek him for his heart. Who is our shepherd? What's his big adjective? He's the good shepherd. It doesn't feel like it's the right adjective. I think he's the great shepherd. I, I know the Bible says he's a good shepherd. We're going to go with that, okay? But he is our good shepherd. He's our model. He's our pattern. And he's the one that we would seek to bring ourselves to be more like. Amen? Straightforward, good stuff? Yeah, I think it is. 
I love this book. I'm so enjoying it together with you guys. Let's close with that. Father, we thank you for uh, the truth, the reality of these things. You are our good shepherd. And Lord, if we could just be a portion of that in the lives of others, even as we point them to you to be their ultimate shepherd, Lord, we would be doing good for them. And so, Lord, give us a heart for those that are in our care, even if it's a younger brother or sister in the faith that uh, you've brought us into their life to encourage them to run their race well. And certainly for any of us that serve as ministry leaders in one way or another. Father, we want to be the type of friend, Lord, that can be used to sharpen another in their journey toward godliness. And so, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would give us a greater insight and a greater humility as we love one another in this body, that we would do it well. Lord, as we seek to invest into each other's life, share life together, we want to do it well. And so empower us, Lord, to walk with diligence, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the sermon podcast of Calvary Chapel of Mercer County. If you would like more information about the church, its ministries, its worship services, or its small groups, please visit ccmercer.com or download the church app to your phone.